0: No purchase necessary, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 48, Butlerian Jihad. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Jay, Viscount of all coaches, even the little ones, and Brooke, Viscount Freeman. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Also, next week is the fourth Intelligent Speech Conference. There are some brilliant podcasters, history and otherwise, presenting and speaking on the 25th of June, starting at 3 pm London time or 10 am Eastern. There are 32 different sessions across four online rooms throughout the day. Just as an example of who's there, these are the ones I'm especially excited for Eric Halsey of the History of Bulgaria, Wesley Liversay from the History of the Great War and Second World War a round table with the hosts of Rex Factor, Totalis Rankium and Pontifacts, and the Ancient History Fangirls. On top of all these individual sessions, there are three keynotes by Rex Factor, Jennifer DeSalle of the Art Curious Podcast, and none other than Jamie Jeffers of the British History Podcast to cap off the day. It's all online, so wherever you are in the world you can attend, but if you can't make it, time zones are a thing after all, Every session will be recorded and available for ticket holders. Go to intelligentspeechconference.com or follow the link in today's episode to find out more. Last time, we covered how the Royalists, Lord Inchiquin and Lord Broghill, turned their cloaks and defected to the English Parliament. Out of disgust at the cessation of arms, the truce between the King and the Irish Confederacy, the defectors brought a large territory into Parliament's control. But as we also saw, Inchiquin almost immediately suffered from Byer's remorse, realising that he was now alone, England was across the sea, and the Confederate armies were just up the road. His backpedalling and backroom dealing with the Lord Lieutenant he had just abandoned, the Marquess of Ormond, and his desperate attempts to ward off Confederate attack, alienated his chief subordinate, Lord Broghill. Where Inchiquin was still trying to keep one foot in the Royalist camp, Broghill had become a card-carrying parliamentarian. He signed the Solemn League and Covenant, and became increasingly associated with the hardliners in Parliament, the Independents, who shared his view on the future of Ireland, a Protestant Ireland planted with good Protestants. James Butler, the Marquis of Ormond, had been named as the King's Lord Deputy of Ireland after the signing of the Cessation of Arms in the last months of 1643. He was sworn in in January of 1644. The cessation, as we've already seen many times, was incredibly controversial across all three kingdoms. Ormond had had to sideline and in some cases arrest its opponents in order to make it happen. It fractured the Protestant alliance in Ireland just in time for the Solemn League and Covenant to arrive and wedge those cracks wide open. But the cessation, for all its faults, and it had many, does at least show that there was enough political will in both Dublin and Kilkenny to at least try to find a peace settlement. The one-year truce would give time for negotiations. And so, in the spring of 1644, delegates from both the Confederacy and the Dublin government travelled to Oxford to meet with the King directly. In March 1644, the Confederates delivered eighteen propositions to Charles, and these propositions will provide the basis for the next few years of negotiation. Long-time listeners of Pax could probably guess most of the Confederate proposals, and in a way they're just the latest edition of The Graces, promised a decade and a half ago, but never fulfilled. First and foremost, the restrictions placed on Catholics in religious and secular life were to be lessened, if not entirely removed. Poyning's Law would be repealed, and the Irish Parliament would be acknowledged as free, independent, and equal to the English. Catholics would be allowed into government, a government which would be reformed to better represent the desires of the political class of Ireland. And, of course, pardons for crimes committed during the rebellion and wars. Interestingly, we can see quite a few parallels in the issues prioritised by both the Confederates and the English Parliament, with similar focuses on constitutional and religious questions, though obviously with very different intentions. For their part, the Dublin delegates proposed terms which would have, if they'd been accepted by the Kilkenny delegates, essentially marked their complete and utter surrender. The pre-war state would have been reinforced. Plantation, would have been further extended, and Catholicism in Ireland would have been even further persecuted. As a piece of ominous foreshadowing, the English Parliament would adopt a similar position. The Dublin representatives supported a negotiated peace between the King and the English Parliament in order for a united England to confront the Confederacy. For Charles and his Oxford Council, their priority was the reverse, to settle the affairs of Ireland through negotiation, and use Irish forces, Royalist and Confederate, in England. In summer, the King and his Oxford government basically handed the problem of negotiation back to Ormond. You deal with it. Here's a few red lines I will not budge on, but otherwise I'll leave it to your discretion, and you can assume my approval. That's not exactly how it went down, but pretty much. Ormond received Charles's, quote full power, warrant and authority to treat, conclude and agree a firm and lasting peace. The King promised that whatever terms Ormond agreed, within reason, he would quote, ratify and confirm the same. Charles wanted, Charles needed a peace with the Irish Confederacy and he was prepared to pay a high price to get it. The Confederate delegates were sent home with a formal reply, which was vague on concrete concessions, and left it up to Ormond to work out the details. As Robert Armstrong puts it in Ormond, the Confederate Peace Talks and Protestant Royalism, quote, It was possible to discern two principles upon which a Royalist negotiating position would be predicated. The overriding goal of re-establishing universal royal authority in Ireland and the intention of doing so within the existing framework of the law. One of the key things to note about the king's position vis-à-vis the Irish Confederacy was that they were rebels first and foremost. The fact they were Catholic was a distant second issue. It's not that Charles didn't care about religious uniformity, because he certainly did, and one of the red lines I mentioned before was the preservation of his Protestant Irish subjects. But to Charles, the Confederates were quote worse Christians because they are rebels. We think them not worse rebels because they are Papists. End quote. After all, the Covenanters were also rebels, and they were definitely not Catholic. This is a familiar royal hatred of rebellion above all else. Elizabeth I famously disliked and opposed rebellion, even against rival monarchs like her cousin Mary. But another element of this is that Charles is being rather clever here. By treating rebellion as the primary issue, rather than Irishness or Catholicism, the king made it far easier for the Confederates to come to the negotiating table. It was far easier to demand they repent their rebellion than their faith. They could be pardoned and welcomed back into the king's good graces. It was this mindset that allowed for a potential peace in Ireland. Pardons and acts of oblivion to wipe away the crimes of the past were offered by both Dublin and Oxford, but while they were far more general and broad than pardons offered by Parliament, who had seemingly endless lists of people who would not be pardoned, there were still limits. The Earl of Clanrickard, a Catholic royalist and ally of Ormond, advised against issuing a blanket pardon, and Ormond was no fool. He could see the obvious advantages of issuing separate pardons to individuals or groups – divide and conquer. The Confederacy could not be integrated back into the Royalist system in one go. It had to be broken down and dismantled. Or at least, that's how Ormond saw it. As Armstrong puts it, quote, The dismantling of the Confederate Association was also akin to an ideological imperative for Ormond. He sought to suppress any illegitimate authority which challenged the power of the king," End quote. that's armstrong's view but less sympathetic perspectives of ormond's negotiating position comes from patrick lenahan and mihalo shukru lenahan argues that ormond's primary loyalty was to the protestant irish interest and that it was the confederacy's threat to that not the king's authority that led ormond to try and break them up in this view, by prioritising the Protestant-Irish agenda, Ormond was fundamentally unwilling, or unable, to meet the minimum demands of the Confederacy. Besides his own personal desires, Ormond was trying to lead a coalition of various Irish-Protestant groups, groups which were increasingly splintering between Royalist and Parliamentarian. As we've seen, the Covenant of Scots and the Parliamentary Enclave in Munster, led by Inchiquin had already broken from his leadership. Further defections would make his position even weaker. But what was going on within the Confederate political ranks? As a reminder, the Irish Confederacy was led by the Supreme Executive Council, which was elected by the General Assembly made up of 14 secular lords, 11 bishops and clergy, and 226 representatives of the commons. The Supreme Council was dominated in this period, by a clique often termed the Peace, or Ormondist faction, which included Viscount Muskery, Viscount Mount Garrett, and Richard Bellings, all three of which were part of, or related, to the Butler family. James Butler, the Marquess of Ormond and Lord Deputy, was Muskery's uncle, Mount Garrett's cousin, and Bellings was married to his first cousin once removed, Mount Garrett's daughter. As their faction names and family ties might suggest, They generally favoured a negotiated peace with the King, and were in constant communication with Lord Deputy Ormond. They championed the cessation, repeatedly renewed it, and were firmly in the driving seat of the negotiations with Ormond until at least 1646. But opposition was growing, and it started to centre around the Catholic clergy. This opposition was termed the Clerical Faction, and they found their leadership from the papal representative, Pier Francesco Scarampi. Shortly after the Confederacy was established, Pope Urban VIII sent Scarampi to be his representative to the newly founded Catholic government, and he was a figure of wise advice, though far from an assertive presence. He opposed the cessation on the grounds that the Confederates were winning, and that, quote, not to go forward is to go backward, end quote. He lost that argument, and he was firmly in the minority at this point, but that would not be the case forever. Another division within Confederate ranks was that of strategy, beyond support and criticism of the cessation and a negotiated peace. Padraig Lenahan identifies two main camps within both the Confederate government and among their officers in the field, which he describes as the insular strategy and the expeditionary strategy. The Insular Strategy had a notable champion in Scarampi, essentially, he advocated for the Confederates to focus on securing their position within the island of Ireland. A stronger position in Ireland meant that, regardless of who won in England, the Confederacy would be able to negotiate from a position of strength, if not outright victory, and if negotiation failed then a united Catholic Ireland would be better able to withstand an invasion. Scarampi argued that, quote, If we now adopt our proper measures, the party eventually triumphing in England will find us in arms, well provided, with increased territories, and stronger in foreign succors. Thus, they could not so readily invade us, nor swallow us up, so as to leave us without the free exercise of our faith, or some share, in the administration of the kingdom. End quote. The expeditionary strategy, expressed by Bellings among others, was to proactively intervene in the other wars of the Three Kingdoms, on the king's side, with two primary aims. Firstly, so that the king was not defeated by a parliament deeply and openly hostile to Irish Catholicism. And secondly, to commit the king to reforms and toleration for his Catholic subjects. Owed to them by their aid, Bellings insisted that the confederacy must quote, be serviceable to the king and prevent any disaster to him which might eventually lead to our destruction. End quote. Lenehan makes the point that both of these strategies were inherently defensive in nature. There was no intention from either camp to try and export their religion into the other two kingdoms notably unlike the Covenanters and the English Parliament. They both understood that any peace would come from negotiation, and they were considering events in the wider wars of the Three Kingdoms. At the time of the First Cessation, the Confederates controlled the majority of territory in the Kingdom, but there were sizeable and valuable holds. Obviously, Dublin was foremost among them. It was the capital, the largest city, a valuable port, but it was also heavily defended, and besides, the Confederates had a truce with Ormond. But in the North, the Covenant army of Robert Monroe and the settler armies and militias aligned with him and the Solemn League and Covenant, were not part of this truce. Ulster had been heavily planted by English, Scottish, and Welsh colonists for the last few decades, and the North Channel was only 12 miles or 19 kilometres wide, at its closest point. And then, to cap off the Confederacy's worries, the defension of Inchiquin in Munster opened up another potential invasion route. Munster and the South were densely populated by settlers, and major harbours such as the Port of Cork would be ideal for English reinforcements. Dublin, Ulster, and Munster were all potential routes for armies of reconquest. Scarampi and those who fought like him argued that the Confederacy, one, should not have agreed to the cessation in the first place, and two, should prioritise setting their affairs in order in Ireland before sending any help to the King. On more than one occasion, though, it's clear that both strategies could be followed at the same time. For example, in November 1643, the General Assembly agreed to send Owen Roe O'Neill, commander of the Confederacy's Ulster army, another 6,000 men, led by the Earl of Castlehaven. This was partly due to O'Neill sort of, kind of, threatening to leave Ulster and let his men take supplies from other regions, if he didn't get support. But it just so happened that Castlehaven's offensive coincided with the Earl of Antrim's dispatch of Alistair MacCollar to Scotland, to begin Montrose's Year of Victories. Ormond supported Castlehaven's offensive and McCollar's adventure, hoping that both might distract the Scots from their intervention in England. We've already seen how McCullough and Montrose enjoyed their Year of Victories, and while it didn't force the main Covenanter field army to return to Scotland, it did keep Leven in the north and prevented a more proactive Covenanter parliamentarian strategy. However, it did mean that Monroes forces in Ireland were reduced, as the Scottish Committee of Safety ordered his men diverted to reinforce armies in Scotland. To add to this, Monroe was forced to stay on the defensive in Ulster, in case more soldiers, or even the entire army, was ordered back to Britain. It was a huge advantage for the Confederates, and David Stevenson suggests that Monroes year of victories was far more beneficial for the Irish Confederacy than it ever was for the King whose cause Montrose was fighting for. Castlehaven's offensive was less successful. He led 6,000 men into the province, but he was limited in what he could actually do. Monroe could still call upon 12,000 men, from his original Covenanter expeditionary force and various militias and local armies. Castlehaven was stuck, harrying and ambushing smaller forces. But Ulster was gradually losing its place as the key to the island of Ireland, at least in this war. The Confederate leadership was well aware of the political manoeuvrings in London. The rise of the independent faction and the increasing scepticism of Scottish intervention in Ireland and England meant that suddenly the polls were reversed. Monroe's army in Ulster was no longer Parliament's main hope for an Irish victory. Now it was the South, in Munster, with Inchiquin and Broghill. The Supreme Council was not blind to this shift. And its relevance to an insular strategy, and so in March 1645 it was agreed that the parliamentarian bridgehead in Munster must be conquered. Castlehaven was once again put in command of 6,000 men and sent against Inchiquin. Castlehaven favoured a gradual, constricting approach. The stronghold at Cappaquin was captured in May, but instead of moving directly on the port of Yal, Castlehaven instead reduced a swathe of minor garrisons north of the Blackwater River. This would squeeze Inchiquin's other garrisons, depriving them of supplies and territory. By August, Inchiquin was left controlling a triangle of territory between the towns of Cork, Kinsale and Bandon, and the outpost of Yawl along the coast to the east. Yawl was a strong fortified position, and Castlehaven was inexperienced, so despite a siege lasting more than three months, he eventually had to withdraw. Throughout 1645 then, while the Confederates negotiate a peace treaty with the Royalists, with the promise of an expeditionary force to aid the King, their military strategy was decidedly insular, focused on containing and removing parliamentary and Covenanter strongholds in the North and increasingly in the South. Success in both theatres would benefit both Confederate and Royalist positions if they came to an agreement. If not, or if the king was defeated and the confederacy left to fight alone, they would need that stronger position. It was a sensible approach, if they'd been successful.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: After the Confederate delegates returned from Oxford in the summer of 1644, a General Assembly was summoned to discuss their negotiations. The men who had made up their negotiating team was reappointed by the Assembly and came to be known as the Committee of Treaty. But the Assembly also demanded reform in how the Confederacy was to be led and insisted that a member of the cloth be appointed to the negotiating committee. This was directly against Orman's insistence that he could and would not negotiate with a Catholic clergyman. But this was more a symbolic act anyway. The Assembly appointed the Archbishop of Dublin, who was reportedly too fat to travel easily. Miholo Shukru notes that the Archbishop was never actively involved in any of the proceedings. His signature never appears, and he is never mentioned in the minutes. I'm not going to go too deeply into the negotiations between Ormond and the Confederate Committee of Treaty. It's interesting, but there's a lot of back and forth going on over the three years. Relatively easy issues were fairly quickly agreed, like the restoration of lay Catholic property to what was owned before the war, a general principle that crimes and decrees of outlaw would be wiped, the reversal of Wentworth's plantations in Connacht, and promises of improvements to the administration of the kingdom to curb abuses. As O'Shukru puts it, although these concessions fell far short of the Confederates' core demands, at least some gains had been made. The meteor issues remained, however the repeal or suspension of Poyning's Law and the penal laws, the summoning of a parliament and the question of its independence and one of the greatest and thorniest issues, the restoration of churches and church property to the Catholic clergy. The Confederate negotiators, well aware that the clergy would firmly resist the return of the churches to Protestant control, made the very sensible, if perhaps short-sighted, decision of just not bringing it up. Ormond and his negotiators had made the same sensible decision knowing that the Irish Protestant clergy would never consent to leaving the reformed churches in papist hands. Until, that is, Ormond brought it up, and the negotiations almost broke down. The Committee of Treaty repeatedly tried to return to the tactic of ignoring the problem, and Ormond repeatedly kept bringing it up. Even after the peace and clerical factions came to an understanding in June 1645 on the issue, Ormond stuck to his guns. The compromise the peace and clerical factions came to was that the Confederacy wouldn't push for the treaty to explicitly cover church property. The other political concessions, and the fact they already controlled the churches, meant that formal recognition could be resolved after the fact. But Ormond, possibly aware that this was the potential future, insisted that the return of the churches to Protestant control Be explicitly agreed to in the treaty. His stubbornness infuriated his allies, but Ormond was trying to lead a coalition of Irish Protestants, and giving further ground to the Confederates would further damage, if not threaten, his legitimacy as the Lord Deputy. But he was also personally opposed to abandoning Protestant churches to Catholic control, and to sacrificing the Protestant agenda in Ireland. James Butler wasn't a zealot. Despite today's episode title I just couldn't resist the reference but he was determined to enforce the supremacy of Protestantism Ormond also had to deal with his king and with Charles's irritating tendency to say one thing in public and the opposite in private he later tried to explain to his lord deputy that his quote intention was not to tie you to the literal but the true meaning of our letters which is the type of management style that everyone really likes. For example, in January 1645, the King publicly declared that he could not accept the repeal of the penal laws, only for him to write privately to Ormond a month later to say that he would accept the repeal of the penal laws, but he only made this admission publicly two months after that. So for those two months, Ormond had his hands tied. Could he promise the repeal of the penal laws to the Confederates? What if that promise was leaked? What if the Confederates didn't believe that Charles would accept it? But when the King made his public commitment to repeal the laws, Ormond still did nothing. He was, quoting O'Shukru, conscious of the almost unanimous opposition in Protestant Ireland to such a concession. The King's meddling aside, O'Shukru pins Ormond with the badge for Greatest obstacle to the peace settlement. Not only was he unwilling to offer basic concessions in return for a very generous peace treaty from the Confederates, but he deliberately focused on weakening the Confederacy, even though a successful peace meant Confederate military support for the King. So during 1644 and the early months of 1645, when the Peace Party was ascendant in the Confederacy and the opportunity for an acceptable peace was the most possible, Orman's willingness to let the negotiations stall on the single most controversial point, religion, let the best opportunity for an early peace to slip away. He repeatedly insisted that a peace treaty needed to include an explicit article promising the return of church property to Protestant hands. Worse, the delay created the ideal conditions for opposition to a negotiated peace within the confederacy. But, whatever his success, or not as the case may be, Ormond's efforts were taking time. They were taking too much time. Time the king did not have. So Charles, as was his idiom, fell back on a tried and tested tactic. Double dealing. But when I say tried and tested, that doesn't mean it passed those tests. Next week, we will see how Charles tries to cut through the red tape that was holding back a peace treaty. At the same time, Confederate politics will gain a new power broker with the arrival of the new papal nuncio, Archbishop Giovanni Battista Rinocchini. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, including the King's favourite Mike Sanders, David Braswell, Duke of Bracewell, Alan Goldstein, Marquis of Southampton, and Russell Steinthal, Earl of Dudley. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. These are the best way to support the podcast, support me, and to help the podcast grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.